Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show and lots to chat about. It's August, but there's plenty going on. So we've got uh, got my co-host back with me, Frank Washkirk, after a week off. Frank, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, good to be with you again. And we've got a brilliant guest this week, Liz Jarvis-Sheen, who is VP of Communications and Policy at DoorDash. So, Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Steve. Frank, great to be with you. Yeah, looking forward to chatting. And then we will get into some some of the topical stories this week. We'll talk about the CDC shaking up its comms function. Talk about Moderna, which is going to be sponsoring the US Open Tennis. Hershey's response to Macklemore's TikTok post and another TikTok marketing best practice. Loads of people moves, including Starbucks alum Linda Mills, AJ Jones, and Ketchum alum Sarah Garibaldi going to Bowdoin, and Berlin Rosen taking a majority stake in Deris. But let's start with you, Liz. You started at DoorDash in 2019. You went public in 2020, and then we had that little thing yes. called COVID. So it's been a very gentle couple of years, yeah? Not much going on. <laughs> no, it was incredibly quiet. Yeah, I actually, uh, Friday marked my three-year anniversary, and it both feels like it has gone by in the blink of an eye and has been uh, almost a lifetime. Yeah, and obviously food delivery services kept us basically kept us alive and i think we have a new respect for everyone in the delivery industry whichever part of it but especially food delivery so tell us about how the the, the, those years have been how you've sort of developed the role especially as a public company and and built the team and and reflected the narratives that uh, are important to doordash as a brand yeah well and again thank thank you for having me you're right. You know, I joined again this time in 2019, and at that point, we had a number of things that we were focused on. It was a it was a smaller team, even though I think the the company itself had by then moved into a, a leadership position in the industry. And so, you know, I walked in the door. I like to joke today, or I think we had four people on the comms team and five people on the policy team, and so you know they could fit in a minivan, and we definitely needed <laughs> something approximating uh, maybe a, a school bus or larger. And so there was Absolutely. a real impetus to to build a team and to bring some great people on board on top of the already spectacular talent that was there. Um, you know, and again, some of the focus was on going public. And then obviously in March of 2020, all of that changed. Um, and everybody immediately pivoted to what we needed to do on behalf of our stakeholders. So the restaurants and other local businesses that all of a sudden needed e-commerce channels and delivery capacity that they had never needed before. Um, consumers who obviously needed to have things delivered in minutes, not hours, not days, and had have those things delivered safely. And then a lot of folks coming to the platform looking for work, whether it was incremental or more, as the economy sort of went through its, its upheaval. And so especially in those first months, Steve, you know, it was... It was all hands on deck. Everybody from Tony Shu, our CEO on down, was manually entering the menus of restaurants and local grocery stores and convenience stores that were trying to come onto the platform as quickly as possible. Um, and then it was, you know, simultaneously, especially for the communications team, how could we get the word out about what was available? 
what was safe, what steps were we taking to make sure that, you know, we were providing PPE to dashers who were coming to the platform. So everything from, you know, masks to, uh, you know, hand sanitizer, other things like that, letting local media know that all of the restaurants that were still trying to stay open were available on DoorDash. Folks could order there. Um, it, it was it was an incredible all hands on deck moment. I I would be honest that I don't remember so many of the specifics, especially those first three or four months. And, and then it kind of transitioned into something um, longer term of you know, we had been all hands on deck to, to keep folks, keep as many of those doors open as possible. Um, and then it became, what were the tools and services we needed to build for local merchants merchants as they, as we kind of moved into that newer phase of the pandemic of sometimes open, but maybe not fully open. And then for our PR team, it was, you know, how, again, how do you get the word out that we have built those products and services? So I think a renewed focus on some of the B2B comms in addition to the the consumer facing work that the team does so excellently and then also you know wanting to make sure that we were telling the story of the work we were doing in the communities to help those merchants stay open to help communities that had been maybe disproportionately impacted by the pandemic so um, you know unfortunately we saw greater numbers greater percentages of local businesses that were owned by people of color and women um, really struggle um, with financing and other things like that. And so we introduced an accelerator program for for those folks in a number of cities around the country. It's, you know, an eight-week set of kind of immersive learnings along with $20,000 grant at the end. But those programs don't do any good if people don't know they exist and don't don't apply and sign up. And so really incumbent upon the team, not only to develop those kinds of things, but also tell the world about it. You know, and I think in this, where we are sort of now is... Um, in the habit of being a public company and existing in this new normal and trying to figure out how do we build for the stage that comes next, even if we can't predict the future. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget, isn't it, that back in March 2020, there were no masks, really, were there? And you couldn't get hold of hand sanitizer. And it was really a a dearth of the basic essentials. The restaurant industry was completely obliterated, critically in many cases, and I'm, yes. I'm guessing that the home delivery part of it kept a lot of businesses alive. So, I mean, what have you got an anecdote or two about, you know, stories about people coming together and, and how DoorDash might have helped and other food delivery services? Obviously, you're the largest in the U.S., but that might have helped keep the industry going during such a tough time. Sure. You know, and, and look, ultimately, we, we are the ones who are in service of of those incredible folks who have built and run their local businesses. And it was just an honor to get to be, you know, play even a small part in, in helping them try to keep their doors open. Uh, you know, we had folks contacting distant relatives overseas try to, to try to help with um, supplying things like like masks and, and hand sanitizers. You know, it was incredibly hard to get a hold of that. And so securing some of that and, you know, getting it shipped over and then figuring out the logistics of getting it distributed to dashers. We also, you know, in particular in some of those early, early weeks of the pandemic when the question was even, are restaurants going to be able to stay open? You know, are convenience stores going to be able to stay open? Our marketing team, I think they did a sprint of about five days to cut some creative and it was called Open for Delivery and then called their friends in marketing at the other delivery platforms and said like, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to run 
ads talking about how restaurants are still open for delivery and to let people know that they can support their local restaurants and help them stay open. They can do pickup, they can do delivery, but those restaurants on their main street are still open and great partnership from some of the other platforms as well. Um, and so it was, it was a sort of a multi-channel cross-functional effort in that regard. And I think that really held true throughout the course of the pandemic, but you saw it come together incredibly quickly in those early days. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Tony Hsu, your co-founder and CEO. You've worked mm-hmm. for some incredible CEOs and, and individuals <laughs> in your career. You worked with President Obama in the White House. You worked with Elon Musk at Tesla, Brian Chesky at Airbnb. So how does how does Tony compare to those individuals? And what, what can you tell us about working for such high-profile people? Well, yeah, you, you are right. I have been incredibly lucky. I have learned from all of them and, you know, have... I'd say the through line is getting to work for leaders who want to have an impact and want the people who work for them to have an impact. And, you know, I think that was obviously true. It, I think it's it's more intuitive. That feels more intuitive in things like public service and politics. But I also think it's really true when it comes to Elon and Tesla and Brian and travel at Airbnb and then Tony here. Um, you know, I think Tony is um, he is just an inspirational leader. He he is so authentic in his, pers- you know, sort of the mission here at DoorDash. People may not know this, um, but, you know, he and his family came over from China when he was five. They immigrated. They moved to Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, while his father went back to school. And his mom worked three jobs to put his dad through school and put food on the table. And one of those jobs was running a Chinese restaurant. And so Tony grew up helping wash dishes next to his mom and then, you know, doing the books and other things like that. And DoorDash is really born of a passion to help people like his mom who are running local businesses do it in a way that succeeds in this, you know, increasingly kind of e-commerce based, convenience based economy. And so, you know, the passion that he brings to that, how he keeps us focused on that mission and focused on our customers is really incredible. And I think very inspirational and is something that we take on the, the comms and policy side. And I would also say sort of for our functions, I think he's an incredible leader who wants us to be business partners and deeply embedded in the business. He doesn't view us as support functions. Um, he wants us to not only to help drive the top and bottom line for all of our audiences, um, but you know, if we have business ideas, come to the table with them, help drive results for everybody who's coming to the platform. Yeah, that's good to know. And it's good to see CEOs generally, you know, appreciating the comms function much more than they used to. And we've been telling that story at PR Week. Have you got an Elon yeah. Musk story for us? I mean, obviously, he's uh, he's uh, he's got his own communication style. He's, I think he said before he doesn't need a comms team or he's had comms teams. What was your what was one big takeaway from that from working there? You know, I think my biggest takeaway from from working with Elon was um, he taught us the importance of controlling our own narrative and telling the story on our terms. You know, I I was there at a much earlier stage. I was there 2013, 2014, 15. Um, I think Tesla, you know, at that point was really beginning to enter the consciousness of the public, um, but was not anything uh, close to what it is today. Um, But electric vehicles had a lot of room to, tell the story, tell the value proposition, but there was skepticism, you know, historically electric vehicles were sort of like golf carts um, that were beloved yeah. <laughs> by maybe environmentalists, but were not a mainstream kind of exciting product. And he had built this incredible car and this incredible company. And, you know, his push to us was 
think about doing comms and PR differently. Don't do it on the, it does, we don't have to do it on the same schedule and in the same way as, you know, the big three in Detroit or some of the other more traditional automakers. And so that was always our big takeaway was, you know, we didn't do new product launches, say at auto shows, which was oftentimes yeah. the, the kind of the pattern and the, the rhythm. It was that we're going to do it when the product is ready and we're going to do a launch in a way that's different and very uniquely Tesla. Um, and we're going to tell it, not just through, you know, Motor Trend and Car and Driver and those magazines, which are fantastic, but we're also going to tell it on social and we're going to tell it in content that we create that reaches the audiences differently. Yeah, it was uh, interesting being in Portland recently. Uh, the two Ubers I got were Teslas, which I was <laughs> surprised to see, but that's quite common over there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Getting back to DoorDash, a couple of interesting mm-hmm. developments. The, you've got DoorDash Kitchens, and I think there's a food uh-huh. hall in Brooklyn, a delivery-focused mm-hmm. sort of ghost kitchen. You, I think you started that in San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about that and what the thinking is behind that. And uh, Is that a, a scheme you're going to develop and expand? It's, look, it's a great question. I think, you know, DoorDash Kitchens for us is um, is about providing merchants who want to reach new customers, either in new neighborhoods or even in new parts of the country with the opportunity to do so. Um, so the one in, in Brooklyn is, in fact, both, um, you know, a kitchen, but there's, there's it's kind of a, a food hall so folks can come in and try. But the idea here is, you know, if you are a local restaurant in, say, Manhattan, and you want to reach a new customer base in Brooklyn, and maybe delivery is not going to uh, get you across the bridge. We sort of take care of some of the physical infrastructure. So for the merchants, it lowers the cost of operating, but it still then enables them to come and reach that new audience. It's, uh, you know, I think it's different maybe than some of the other kind of ghost kitchen concepts that companies that are specifically doing just that are looking for. This is really kind of an additional service for local businesses if they want to reduce maybe they're they don't want to do a full footprint of a whole new restaurant but they do want to reach new customers it's it's a different approach for that yeah and obviously we had the news this week about the the end of the deal with walmart after four years is that a case of well walmart's putting their own delivery thing together and maybe it wasn't the relationship wasn't working for both sides in the same way what what was the sort of driver behind that you know look i think we're we're Proud of the and grateful for the relationship that that we had. Um, you know, it, it's and just for for any of your listeners, it was through um, our product called DoorDash Drive, um, which is the white label service that we offer to anyone from the WalMarts of the world down to to local moms and pops. But it's um, you know we handle kind of the back end logistics and the delivery. But you as the customer, Steve, you know, if you were ordering, say, um, you know, groceries from Albertsons or Safeway, you're going to do that maybe more on the through their app or their website. Again, you know, grateful for the partnership over the four years and excited to take drive kind of to the next level. We know that there's a lot of interest in it, both on the grocery side, but also for, for restaurants and others. Now, just to finish, tell us about your dashes, because they're clearly absolutely fundamental to the whole process and you know it's a tough gig right it's a tough job we've seen the features about how hard they work and how many deliveries they do there are safety issues whatever tell us what your attitude is and how you make sure they're safe and that they're they're able to prosper from what's going on as well and that they get treated properly yeah so you know it it's one of the things we were talking about the pandemic earlier i will say one of the things that's been very interesting for us is that the the uh the interest in dashing has remained relatively constant pre, during, and 
post-ish pandemic, if we can call it that. It is overwhelmingly folks coming to the platform looking for small amounts of incremental work, about four hours a week is the average, looking to meet a financial goal and doing a lot of other things with the majority of their time. 85% of dashers have either a full-time job, a part-time job, are students or have caretaker responsibilities. But, you know, irrespective for anybody who comes to the platform, we want to make sure every dash is worth it. So we put a real you know focus on making sure that earnings are as high as possible. Safety, you mentioned, super important. We have a great partnership with ADP. So there's an in-app integration in the Dasher app. Um, so in the event that they start to feel unsafe or an incident happens, they can contact ADP with the push of a button and have you know live support um, immediately. And then, you know, broadly speaking, again, we want to make sure that the experience is as good as possible. And so it's part of why we actually have a program here at DoorDash called WeDash, which Tony Pilot, you know, our CEO, Tony Shu, spearheaded from the early days. And we, we brought back during uh, the, the waning days of COVID. And it is every employee dashes and then provides feedback so that you know um, what the experience is like and how we can make it better. So we have a huge Slack channel where people share their feedback after their dashes. Tony himself dashes every single month along with doing <laughs> customer support. And so, you know, that's one of the ways we want to stay really close to the experience of the people on the platform and make sure that we're making it better literally every single day. Yeah, my nephew does a bit of dashing and he's a student. So, uh, yeah, yep. he's one of the, he's a case in point. All right. Well, good to chat, Liz. And, um, Hi. we're looking forward to get your input on some of the uh, topical stories this week. Frank, over to you. The CDC got a bit of criticism last week and it's going to shake up its comms function in the light of what are continuing health emergencies, aren't there? And as an aside, Dr. Fauci is retiring after 50, 60 years stint. So all change at CDC. Yeah. It sounds like uh, a bit more than just a little criticism of the CDC, the way they've responded to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, and I think also have responded to the public health emergency about monkeypox. Um, we covered a few weeks ago a lot of the criticism from healthcare agency professionals about uh, the ways that they think the federal government should be talking and what they should be saying and shouldn't be saying. Uh, about monkeypox and the messages they should be using, as well as what audiences they should be talking to and the ones they shouldn't be talking to. And I think there was a consensus that they should be doing better on that. Okay, so back to COVID-19. The director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, is said that the agency has to transform itself into an organization that, that is, is less scientific in layman's terms and one that more effectively gathers the public health data and communicates about imminent threats. Uh, and, and that to me sounds like what she's saying is that it just needs to be able to comment more rapidly, respond to things more quickly in layman's terms and th in ways that people can understand and also really uh, you know, declare when things are a real emergency and who they affect and uh, what people need to do to keep themselves safe, whether that's vaccination or other things. Uh, you also mentioned Dr. Fauci. I, I, it's really breathtaking. I mean, and we, we think of him, I, I think, as a communicator and a spokesman, and that's a big part of the job. But it's, it's almost easy to forget when you see him on TV all the time that he's been a scientist first and foremost. And he, he started in infectious diseases for the federal government when he was back in his 20s. It's hard to believe and really did critical work uh, on HIV and AIDS in the 80s and 90s. You know, really, really important work. Um, and so it, it, this pandemic isn't going away tomorrow. 
will be interesting to see who, who becomes the public face of the government's response to this uh, as, as it enters its next phase. And hopefully that's a less of an emergency phase. Yeah, um, good job, Dr. Fauci, over the years. I mean, he's a, he's a devices figure with some people, but he's, he's, a, he's a dedicated public servant who's done some amazing work over decades and wish him well when he retires at the end of this year. But again, a start of a new start. Liz, you mentioned you worked in the Obama White House. You've dealt with federal agencies. I guess it's getting that balance right between you've got to get the science right and get the facts right, but then you've got to try and get a big, massive organization operating quickly and it's not always easy to square those that circle is it i i think that's exactly right and you know i i give dr walensky a, a lot of credit for um undertaking the effort to do kind of this top to bottom review and being very transparent with the public about um the the roses and thorns if you will and the the actions that they are going to take you know i i also think to your point um all of us as communicators know that, you know, you want to always want to tell your story better, but you also have to have a better story to tell. And so I appreciate that the that the review and, and the, the action plan is not just how can they communicate better and be more nimble and reach people where they are to get them that information, but also, you know, making sure that on the, you know, the testing side, the data side, all of that kind of public health infrastructure that she talked about, um, that, that there are improvements and actions taken there and that is pulling everybody closer together. I also thought one of the things that was very smart, to talk, I think she talked about sort of removing some of the, the layers between her and the other decision makers at the top and some of those folks who are implementing because that that is a huge component part in being nimble. And, and so I just, I, you know, again, have it, as you, to your point, having worked in the federal government, things there do not move. Uh, very quickly, oftentimes, as my, my grandfather would like to say, you know, the pace of molasses in January. Um, and so it, it, I, I was very impressed. And I think they get a lot of credit for, for being for holding themselves accountable and being committed to changing. Yeah, and that's the world now. There are public health emergencies, and it's going to impact everything, isn't it? Every com story yeah. has some sort of public health lens for it through it, and and, yes. and will do moving forward. So yeah, um, yeah, I suppose we got the vaccines so quickly that uh, Everybody's expecting things to move faster and in other areas too. But uh, sticking with the health theme, uh, Frank, Moderna is going to be sponsoring the US Open Tennis um, to promote mRNA awareness. Yeah, and I think that's a smart move. It is a unique event, and this gives them the opportunity uh, to partner with Billie Jean King. Um, I believe it's the 50th anniversary of her really, you know, bursting onto the scene as a tennis star, and she's, uh, she's front and center uh, as a part of this campaign. So it's going to run between August 29th and September 11th, which is around the end of the tournament, and it's going to provide information about mRNA technology. I, I think this is important because the mRNA technology is just such a, a – it, it's just such a topic of disinformation on social media uh, and, and, and various forms and, and different places in the internet. Um, and for them to really go out and explain what it is and what it isn't and what it does and what it doesn't do to somebody and how it helps them, I think is really important uh, to, to, to dispel the disinformation out there about it. It's also, I think, telling the story that it's going beyond COVID, right? That the mRNA goes way beyond that as an issue, right? It's, it's, a, more, it's a broader issue. Yes, it is. And it is important for them to look beyond, um, beyond the pandemic in ways, too. All right. Liz, you've got some good sponsorship tie-ups, I think, uh, with the NBA, the MLS. I think the NBA was part of that Black-Owned Restaurants initiative you did. So how do you use those sponsorships as part of your Marcoms and, and storytelling mix? 
Well, it's, look, it's a great question because I think to what I was going to sort of comment on with regard to the Moderna situation is I, you know, in Frank's point around mRNA and some of the the questions that have been asked is like I, fundamentally any of these partnerships, any brand refresh should be about telling your story, building trust and, and building a bond between, you know, and a, a set of connections with your audiences. And so, you know, I, I think on Moderna's side, it's, it is about how do they tell their story in a way that um, either assuages any, any concerns that people have, or just educates folks and makes them feel increasingly comfortable with and having greater trust in whatever Moderna is offering. And so, you know, I think we think about that. It's, it's you know, you, the NBA is fantastic. And look, I grew up in Sacramento where there was nothing happening growing up except the Sacramento Kings. And so I am incredibly <laughs> excited about our partnership with the NBA. Um, it is about telling the surprise and delight story. Um, it is about telling the offerings, but it's also about telling um, the, the, the kind of deeper value propositions of the work that you do and and why you are there. And so, yeah, the NBA, whether it's around our partnership with them and black owned businesses or anything like that, it's, it's a real opportunity, not just to highlight the products and what people are getting delivered to their door, but it's also about your mission and, and what are you doing as a company and, and what do you stand for? Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's an interesting play by Moderna and uh, look, looking forward to the US Open. It's Serena's last major so uh, it's going to be an emotional one and it's always a great event yes. in new york anyway the whole of new york comes yeah. out for that um frank tiktok is where it's at isn't it everybody is well if you're under a certain age you're using it um we've we've kept off it so far you and i but um it's a massive environment for brands to reach especially young people but teams are still working out how to use it and the best practice and we've done a couple of case studies and a bit of analysis in the last week um just to highlight that for sure. Uh, let me give you the timeline here. Um, so the rapper Macklemore was at Hershey Park where he was performing recently and uh, was on a scooter going through the, the uh, guest store in Chocolate World, a place near and dear to my artist, somebody who grew up in Pennsylvania, of course. Um, so uh, there was some dispute with security about whether or not he should have his scooter in the store. And uh, he said it was cleared by Todd, who he described as the head honcho of uh, security at the store. It turns out there actually is a Todd who works in security there. And, and Hershey was able to jump into this and, and, and uh, embrace it as a brand and become involved with it on social media. It's, uh, I, I think the positives about it, I could say, in terms of Hershey's response is that it's, it's a quick response. They're clearly monitoring their... Um, they're clearly monitoring the channels well and decided when to jump in. And another interesting aspect of it, too, was that they mentioned that a lot of employees uh, at Hershey Park and mm -hmm. at the at the gift store were really excited about it. And, and it is always interesting, too, to see how companies use these things as an internal communications uh, campaign as well and uh, sort of, you know, turn the lens inside. Uh, and create employee excitement. So um, I think good on them in that uh, in those two ways. Yeah, and we did an analysis piece uh, by Chris Daniels where he's looking at search on TikTok, which is a big area of growth, where that's becoming the format where young younger consumers go to search. They don't necessarily go to Google, they go to TikTok. So searching video and how you can exploit that and how that's going to develop. Liz, um, Hershey's used their in-house content team to do that response and film the TikTok. Mm -hmm. It's with these new platforms, it's, it's still a learning process, isn't it? So how do you sort of approach that? And obviously, 
TikTok is live. You, you've got to be monitoring what's said. I'm sure there's stuff said about DoorDash and every other brand on, on TikTok and other social media channels. So how do you sort of keep your keep yourself aware of stuff and, and work out what you should respond to and maybe what you don't respond to? Look, it's it's a great question. You know, I, I know you all have talked extensively about you know the, the news cycle just sort of doesn't end anymore, um, yeah. and and it is it obviously been even more transformed by by social. And so we do you know between our in house teams and external uh, agency partners, we are constantly monitoring all the channels. Um, you know, sometimes. Uh, for us at least, which may be a bit different from Hershey, it's just a direct customer like, hey, I've had this issue with my order. Can you help me? But I think what the Hershey team did is is a great example of like, you do have to be fast in your response. Um, you have to be comfortable with um, you know responses that may feel a little edgier than anything you might have even done three years ago, let alone 10 years ago. You know, you do it with a little, a little cheekiness. And it's, I think TikTok in particular feels like you need to be in on the joke um, and not take yourself too seriously. And I think that's an important lesson for, for big brands in particular of like, you have to get comfortable with not take, you, you know, take what you do seriously, but maybe don't take yourselves so seriously. And TikTok is a place, I think, where that really comes to life. And I thought that their response was was smart. But you do, you know, I think you also have to be comfortable taking that chance and being willing to make a little bit of a mistake, because I think that, that the downside in doing just what is safe is actually greater than the downside in, in landing it wrong um, in the moment. Yeah, I agree with you. It's very tricky. I mean, that that could have gone wrong, that response, you know, it, it, so they did have to be bold. And they did. Yeah. And you're right about the culture of the platform. And you've got to have people on your team and your staff who understand it and get it. And it's uh, and all of these channels are evolving. But it seems like a lot of the innovation is at TikTok, right? We're, we're, we're seeing Instagram and Facebook and Twitter having their woes. And uh, but it feels like the innovation is driving marketing and comms and a lot of it's happening on TikTok. So every communicator, every marketer needs to know about it, don't they? I, I think that's right. And I think it's, you know, I think it means that you have to have a team that is reflective of the users on TikTok. Um, you know, I, I am probably not the right person to, to be <laughs> no. the, the, the lead TikTok strategist. <laughs> um, but, but I know enough to know that, you know, we have the, these great folks who are super digital native who were early adopters of TikTok and they are the ones leading the strategy. But, you know, I think it is also important to, I, I think you're right, there's a lot of innovation that happens on TikTok, but it's also, I think all communicators know that each of the social platforms has kind of different audiences who you're trying to reach. And so oftentimes your media audience tends to be more on Twitter. And so if and when you need to engage there, that's a, that's a different and specific strategy versus a TikTok or an Instagram or a Facebook. Yeah, very true. Very true indeed. And we'll continue to bring those case studies to you and those analyses of best practice. On the move. Frank, loads of people moves. It might be August, but it's not quite on that front. Lots of people getting new jobs for September or whenever. So just walk us through some of those. Yeah, crazy amount of announcements for uh, this week and last week in August, which are uh, usually very quiet. Clark's company has a new communications lead, a familiar face to our readers, and that's Linda Bills. She's going to be the new chief communications officer. She was most recently at Blue Origin, which is the Jeff Bezos-founded uh, space tourism company. 
She is also a veteran of Starbucks and worked at Wagner Enstrom Worldwide before that, now known as We, of course. Sticking with the Pacific Northwest theme for a second, AJ Jones has been promoted permanently to the EVP and Chief Communications and Public Affairs Officer role at Starbucks. He's leading everything from brand global communications, retail comms, employee comms, and the Starbucks Stories portal, reporting up to Frank Britt, who is the EVP and Chief Strategy and Transformation Officer. He joined up at Starbucks from Vanda Pharmaceuticals last October. He's also a veteran of the agency world at BCW. There's a new president at Bowdoin, and that is Sarah Garibaldi. She actually replaces Natalie Bowden in that role, who's moving up to the role of CEO. So Garibaldi is going to oversee day-to-day operations and oversee 30 staffers uh, at the firm. She recently was at Ketchum, where she worked 14 years, uh, most recently as the managing director and portfolio leader. She's also worked at Edelman and Weber Shanwick. So we also have some things that we are writing about this week, some more people moves. Uh, And that's a Scott Stansel, formerly of Amazon, is moving to Truist Financial as their EVP and Chief Communications Officer. Interestingly, he's reporting up to the Chief Legal Officer and Head of Public Affairs, Alan Fitzsimmons, at the company. But he is leading corporate comms, including external and internal communications from their headquarters in Charlotte. And here's a really, uh, this is one that stops you in your tracks a bit, a John Banner, longtime top communications and and even broader than that executive at PepsiCo, uh, is moving over to McDonald's where he is going to serve as executive vice president and global chief impact officer. That's the role that Katie Byrne Fallon, also a veteran of the Obama White House, had over at McDonald's before leaving recently. I did not realize John was a longtime top TV producer, top TV news producer, and was the executive producer of the World News with a, a bunch of anchors at ABC and Peter Jennings, Bob Woodruff, Elizabeth Barbas, Charles Gibson. Um, so was a longtime executive uh, producer in the TV world. And one last one, uh, Weber Shanwick's chief creative officer, Cyril Saramento, uh, is joining um, is joining Saatchi, uh, the publicist group agency, uh, as executive creative director. And also a senior creative going back to advertising from PR, which is We've seen many more moves the other way. Some really interesting moves there, actually. And uh, we tried to get John Banner on this pod many times, so maybe he'll come on now he's joining McDonald's. Um, interesting to see what's happening at Bowdoin and uh, Natalie Bowden, the founder and now CEO, very much seeing that as doubling down and investing in the future growth of the company. And Sarah Garibaldi is going to be based in New York. So interesting to see where they take that. But uh, Liz, does it matter who you report to when you're the head comms person? Because we had different ones there. Some people report directly to the CEO. Some CCOs will only re- they'll only take a job if they report to the CCO. What's your take on that? Look, I I think I feel lucky. I I do get to report to our CEO uh, Tony Shu. I think that reporting lines probably matter a little bit less to me than do you have a seat at that executive table. So if you are at a company. You know, so I, my old boss at, at Airbnb, Chris Lahane, phenomenal, um, and and I think a powerhouse within Airbnb really helped to shape the trajectory of the business and that and that community for six plus years. Um, sat on the executive team, didn't always necessarily report directly into Brian. That didn't lessen his impact. I think you need to have a seat at the table and be a voice in the room. 
if that means you report to somebody else, I think that that matters a little bit less um, as long as you are there and that your function can really drive initiatives forward, be in early, be a part of the conversation, be a part of the strategy. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Sometimes we over-obsess about that stuff. And Frank, one more story to end the pod. Berlin Rosen's taken a majority stake in Deris. Yes, their Berlin Rosen's acquisition streak continues. Um, and after the uh, Democratic primaries uh, in New York last night, would love to know if they're celebrating or not uh, at that very Democratic Party-connected uh, firm. So they're uh, taking a stake in a majority investment in brand consultancy uh, and communications from Daris, which is going to retain its brand and independence under their CEO, Jesse Daris. Um, they have 75 staffers in two offices, 65 in New York and 10 in London. Uh, and they launched uh, with uh, more than 25 brands from zero to over $1 billion in enterprise value, according to the CEO. Uh, this is the third, in, third acquisition or majority investment uh, within a few months for Berlin Rosen since uh, they took on an investment from private equity firm, O2 Investment Partners. Um, back in January. So uh, since then, they have taken a majority investment in Glen Echo Group, and they acquired the firm Onward uh, last month. Yeah, listen, this industry is growing. There's M&A activity, interesting people moves. There's more people being um, applied to the function. I think we're in a good place. So, uh, Liz, it was great to find out your role and what you're doing at DoorDash and uh, continued success over there. And uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, and uh, can't wait to listen to the episode that comes after this and all the ones uh, subsequently. Yeah, we uh, we always have great guests, and uh, Liz yeah, is no exception. Lineup. Yeah, and Frank, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Steve. Just a couple of housekeeping announcements. So our best places to work is open for entry, so do look that up and make sure that you're, uh, you've applied and that the survey is going out to your staffers got our PR Week Awards, the Oscars of the PR industry. They're open for entries. Make sure you're working on those. The entry dates will come up fast. We've mentioned PR Decoded and the Purpose Awards. They're in Chicago on the 11th and 12th of October. Really looking forward to be back in person with everybody. 40 Under 40, the rising stars of the industry. That's on the 27th of October in New York City. And don't forget to get a hold of our Salary Survey Premium Edition. Really interesting insights in there that will help you plan for 2023 and the uh, increasing importance of the comms functions, whether you're an agency or client side. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.